Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. I am Tom Maluli. I'm here with my co-host, Brendan Maluli. Ready ready to uh, discuss some good topics this week. Ready, sh- ready, fire, aim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is episode number 234. Thanks for tuning in. Ben Carlson had this post like last week about, uh, it was called When Cash Outperforms Everything. Right. So these numbers might have changed by now, but he was just talking about how at, at this point last week, we had seen cash outperform both stocks and bonds over the course of calendar year 2018, okay. which is pretty rare. It has only happened a handful of times uh, in history going back to 1929. But I thought the point was just well well made that he looked back at rolling 12-month periods back to, you know, the 30s and stocks stocks outperformed cash like 70% of all rolling 12-month periods and bonds Wait, say that again. Stocks outperformed okay. cash right. in 70% of rolling 12-month periods. Yeah. And bonds outperformed cash 66% of rolling 12-month periods. So right. if you have a a traditional portfolio where you have some mix of the two of them, most of the time, one of them at least is going to outperform right. uh, cash, and a lot of times both of them are going to outperform cash. But every once in a while, you're going to have you're going to have a year where both of them underperform cash, and that doesn't mean that like something's wrong or things are broken. It just mm-hmm. means that like you're playing a probability based game, and those sometimes <laughs> those sometimes you're going to be on go. the losing side of a trade. That's yeah. just the way it is. And <clears throat> I think the problem is when you look at when cash outperforms bonds or stocks, the next question in my mind is, okay, for how long? Right. I mean, this may be, you know, that period from, I don't know, July of 2008 until March of 2009, cash was clearly outperforming everything. Other than that, it's been like, I'm sure Ben alluded to in the message in his post, a couple of weeks here and there. Yeah, where cash outperformed either stock market or bond market. It's a temporary situation. Yeah, I think that uh, in either case, I mean, they're they're both like like Ben alludes to them being like risk assets. They are. So you look on the spectrum of like risk you're taking, and there's cash on one end, and then like bonds are somewhere along the way, and obviously stocks are further out than that. Right. But when you invest money in risk assets, you're being rewarded for taking. That risk, risk and the risk being that it's not always going to work and especially not over a short term time frame windows. like like one year. <clears throat> and if you yeah. stretch these out to three years, five years, 10 years, those yeah. percentages get better and better, but oh, they're sure. not perfect either. No, that speaks to like having a diversified portfolio, too, because this is this is looking at just U.S. stocks and bonds. I'm pretty sure running numbers off of, you know, S&P 500 and aggregate bonds. So the first thing that comes to mind for me is that you had a period from 2000 to 2010 uh, where cash outperformed U.S. stocks as a, as measured by the S&P 500 for 10 years. Right. Um, but that only looks at large cap U.S. stocks. Right. If you had small cap U.S. stocks or small cap value U.S. stocks or international stocks. You did fine. You did fine. But again, all of those are going to have these same similar numbers uh, in terms of how often they outperform cash over a 12-month period, but they're going to happen at different times. Right. So if you if you piece these things together, uh, you're never going to have a portfolio that is guaranteed to outperform cash over a one a rolling one-year period. That's that shouldn't be what your goal is anyway. So that's that's okay. But yeah. the more you, you don't want to add a million pieces, but 
But if you add things like international stocks to complement your U.S. stocks with bonds to complement both of those things, I think the odds of having pieces of your portfolio ahead of the game uh, each each year or, or over longer stretches, it's going to be pretty good. It is going to be good, but the problem then becomes, okay, suppose you've got nine sleeves in your account. You've got small cap, you've got large cap, you've got international, you've got emerging markets, you've got fixed income, I'm running out of fingers. But each of them represents about 10 or 11% of a portfolio. Is the 10% that's in international going to save or bail out the rest of the portfolio that's going down the drain? Probably not. I mean, it depends. We're assuming that it's just ten percent into each of them. That's maybe not the case. I think it may you, not be. I think the big part of like portfolio construction is thinking about these things, like you just said, thinking, all right, so what if this is the good piece and the other ones stink, or what if that is the good piece and the other ones stink, and balancing those things to make sure that you have enough exposure where you need it in differing areas so that they can pick up the slack for the other ones. And I think that's something that a lot of people in the US do a bad job of. And I think it's actually across the globe in terms of home country bias. Sure. But it's been rewarded uh, for US investors since around 2011 or 12, not longer than that. I, I can see your face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to go back in time and think, oh, no, 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 that's not true. It is goes true. back to 1982. If you looked, no. <laughs> if you looked from the bottom in, in 2009, international stocks did at least as well as US stocks coming out of the financial crisis until around 2011 or 12. And that's where the divergence really started. But now well, we're going on six, seven, eight years of U.S. stock outperformance. Obviously, international stocks had some years along the way in there, but by well, and large, people have been rewarded for only having U.S. exposure. I'm just thinking of um, 2011 was the first year that we started hearing about countries like Egypt, Tunisia, Greece, where some of these markets started to implode. Makes sense. Yeah, but overarching point being that just because people have been rewarded for only having U.S. exposure for seven years. I mean, in terms of what we're looking at in market history, is that we want to continue making that bet forever into the future? No. I don't think so. And, and how do we know when the tides are going to turn? We're not. We don't. Right. And we're not going to. And, right. you know, obviously this year this year hasn't been a good story for U.S. or international stocks. But but thinking back to last year, when, when was the signal in 2017 that international stocks were going to be up more than U.S. stocks? There was no signal. There wasn't one. Right. Um, it just and, was. Right. And so either you're going to be chasing into that trend after the fact. Right. Or, you, or you're going to own it through. Or Yeah. Or you can think about how much exposure you want to have to international markets. I'm not saying it has to be 80% of your portfolio, but you probably want to have a piece of your portfolio allocated to their and obviously that's going to be determined by a whole host of things. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Uh, so, I mean, similarly along the same lines of, of cash outperforming uh, 
you know, different asset classes this year. I saw an interesting tweet from uh, Jeff Patak of Morningstar. Sure. Again, along the same lines, it looked it looked at the uh, the number of mutual funds, and then he broke it down into percentage too uh, of mutual funds with losses uh, versus gains by year. And so he went back to uh, 1999 and and put out uh, some graphs just looking at whether mutual funds made or lost money. Um, over each each calendar year. Again, this is only through. I think he posted this earlier earlier this week. But uh, the percentage of mutual funds with uh, losses so far in in 2018 was approaching uh, about 80 percent, which is high. Uh, just very spe- high. speaks to the idea that there hasn't really been uh, in terms of like risk assets, stocks or bonds across the globe, U.S. international. There have not been many areas to date right now uh so far this year that that have made money and so that i think speaks to that mutual funds whether they're large cap us or developed markets uh internationally versus passive right like there there hasn't been money to be made and and so yeah i mean like the whole notion that maybe active management should shine during a period like this because there's a big discrepancy across performers and outperformers underperformers in terms of the dispersion that they speak of it doesn't seem to have helped at all this year to pick winners or losers. Interesting to look at, like a year like 2017, uh, basically everybody made money. So this, this chart has nothing to show. Uh, the the last difficult year looks like 2015, where the reading came in uh, just over 60% uh, from what I'm seeing here. Obviously, a year like 2008, uh, about 90% of mutual funds didn't make money. So when... Uh, you may not know this, but when Jeff was putting this together, is he going year by year saying, okay, in the current year, 2006, how many funds made money versus lost money? Or yep. is he looking back? Because the, the reason why I'm asking is, I mean, in the industry, we know this, but I don't know if a lot of listeners know this. When a mutual fund family owns a fund and they see a lot of outflows and they see poor performance, they just close the fund. Right. And so that also skews the numbers in the sense that uh, when you look at some of these mutual funds that have been around for long periods of time, they may not have originally started that way. They could have been they could have had another fund merged into them Mm -hmm. or they you know, these funds could have been closed. All their competitors went away. They were the only one left in the sector. Yeah. I think this just looks in a vacuum like it says, like you said, 2006. Let's of all the listed got. mutual funds, and he mm-hmm. used like the lowest cost, uh, oldest share class, so um, okay. institutional for many of these. He also took he he had little like a little heat map chart too uh, to layer on top of this percentage that showed if they made or lost money. It kind of color coded it in green and red, like bright green to dark red in terms of if they made money, like how much. Okay. And if they lost money, like how much, and it broke it down into like. Zero to negative ten percent, negative ten percent to negative twenty percent for the for the oh. returns, and so the the bar in twenty eighteen was very light, meaning that the gains that have existed for the twenty percent or so that have made money are between zero and ten percent, and and a lot of the losses uh, for for those that have lost money are between zero and ten percent, meaning basically a lot of the mutual funds this year have done nothing, which is more or less what. A lot of the major market indices have done too. It's pretty interesting because uh, next week is typically the week where uh, these mutual funds go 
ex-dividend, where they've declared by now how much the dividend is going to be, you know, what the capital gain distribution is going to be. And uh, next week is when we get calls from people who may not have heard the news. Hey, why is my mutual fund down $7 on a day when the market did nothing? Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> that's the day when it goes ex-dividend. And uh, those, you know, if you're reinvesting, no problem. Also, if you if you own them in an IRA, no problem. Yes. <laughs> if you're being surprised by a big capital gains distribution in your brokerage account, I feel sorry for you. Yeah, you should have a conversation with your broker about that. Yeah. So I think the real wake-up call for some people is going to be that there will be capital gain distributions this year, even though... These funds are not going to show gains. Yeah, no, uh, great, great point. That's overlooked. I mean, if if everybody ends up around where they are, meaning uh, there's a few out there that end up slightly positive, you get a little return for the risk you you uh, took on this year, or you know you lose a little bit of money, which is the case for many of these. Regardless of that, you may have tax implications depending on where you hold a fund like this and and what they needed to sell during the year. Well, CEOs and CFOs take a lot of heat because sometimes they will manufacture or massage or manage their earnings at the at their quarterly earnings release and say, yeah, we were able to beat the estimates by a penny. Sure. Uh, I just wonder how much massaging goes on as a year like this rolls on where a mutual fund manager says, I really ought to sell that position, but I'm going to unleash a lot of capital gains. So I'm going to sell that position instead where I don't have a lot of capital gains. Mm -hmm. I just wonder how much of that gamesmanship goes on behind the scenes. There, there's a ton that goes it goes on behind uh, the scenes, so to speak, at mutual funds, even when we're talking about like uh, an S&P 500 index fund, like there, there's a person who has to manage the Vanguard 500 index fund. I'm pretty sure I, I heard him interviewed. I forget where, but it, it was pretty interesting to hear how they have to they have to stay on top of stuff like this. Like if they need to match an index, they need to do what the index is doing, but then they don't want to have a big, a big tax burden for sure. the people that own the fund. And so they have to be smart about, we're going to sell this this lot of this stock and pair it with this one and, and that to net to zero so that people get the exposure they're, they're hoping to get uh, and and without tracking error. Because if you're getting, especially from an index fund, sure. you don't want tracking error there. With an active fund, you'd hope that they're being intelligent about when they recognize these gains or, or not uh, as well. But I know we... we uh, discussed back over the summer something that that Jeff Pitak wrote for Morningstar about a pretty good international fund uh, that has just had a lot of withdrawals this year and and a little bit of uh, trouble in terms of international stocks being down and had sold a lot of positions already where they had losses and now have have reached that point that you're describing where hey there's there's nothing else to sell and we have to meet some redemption so we're going to sell this stock that we've held for years and years yeah it, it's kind of out of their hands at that point uh so you hope that you don't get there with with funds that you own but it's a lot of work for a couple of basis points eh. trying to land the um land the jet on the aircraft carrier yeah, it's a lot. Uh, I mean, like like I said, for an index fund, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. But even you think of it, I mean, for a couple of basis points, but if it's four basis points on the Vanguard 500 fund, how, how much in assets do they have, though? Uh, I mean, yeah. four or five basis points is still a lucrative business. Real Otherwise, they, they wouldn't do it. It's still real money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, if it were 
four basis points on 10,000 bucks, then they, they wouldn't put in the work, but right. they have enough to pay a team of people to uh, manage a fund like that still. So we talk about tax loss harvesting for clients, and uh, we talk about things that moves that we should be making at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, um, anything else we ought to be talking about? Yeah, uh, tax, tax loss harvesting, definitely a timely topic in a year like this where many things have maybe underperformed over the course of a year. So we want to stay on top of stuff like that. But uh, Christine Benz at Morningstar wrote a couple weeks back about uh, tax gain harvesting, uh, which I think is is something people would be like, wait, did she mean loss harvesting? Did she harvesting? say that right? wrong? Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. she mis- misspeak? But, but not the case. Um, and, and she was talking about something that isn't going to apply for a ton of people, but it's something to be aware of. There is a 0% capital gains rate that exists if you have income low enough. So if you're a single tax filer below 38,000 or so in uh, in taxable income or a joint filer below 77,000, uh, these numbers are for 2018, you may not be uh, in a position where you owe any capital gains tax. And so if you have a brokerage account and you have highly appreciated stock or a mutual fund that you've owned for years and years that you have gains in, uh, you don't need to worry about taking those gains from the account and recognizing them. Um, and even if you if you don't need income at all, you could sell these things, buy them back the next day, because there's no wash sale rule for tax gain harvesting. It's only on tax losses. Right. right. And for those, you have to wait 30 days after you take a loss if you want to buy the same position back. Right. For tax gain harvesting, you could you could sell a position that you've owned and you have big gains in, recognize a gain, and if you're still below those income levels uh, after taking into account you know the income that you get from the sale of of that stock or fund, you're not going to owe any extra taxes on it, and you can just buy it back, you know, the very next day uh, and just have a totally new cost basis in it. It's kind of how ETFs operate in a sense, where they're they're constantly turning over their portfolio each day to own shares with a higher and higher cost basis so that when sell shares to match an index or do something that there's no tax liability for the end user. Right. So it, it can be smart uh, if if you take a look at these things. It's pretty helpful. I there's there's ways that I think a an investment advisor or financial planner can be creative with their clients, especially as we get to the end of a year like this where the market, like you said, hasn't really done anything. Um, we did have some gains earlier in the year, some recent turbulence in the market. We don't know where it's going to end up with a month to go, but you look at these things and say, Hey, you know, it's time to really talk about being creative with things that you do. So I know in a previous podcast and also with some of our guests, we talked about making charitable donations in the year that you do a Roth conversion. Yeah. Something like that. So there's certainly ideas out there where you can take advantage of these ty- these types of things. I have to admit, I read the same article and I saw tax gain harvesting and I said, oh, that's a typo. Yeah. That's got to be a mistake. Yeah. All right. I think that's going to wrap up episode number 234. Uh, for today. Thank you very much for listening and we will talk to you again real soon.